Well, now we will come to the part of our service where we will look at a passage of Scripture. We're going to talk about what this means for our lives, why this matters, and we are now just two weeks left in the book of James. Uh, So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 5, beginning at verse 7, if you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 856. When you found that passage, would you stand together if you're able and we'll read God's word? James chapter 5, beginning at verse 7. James writes this. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. That's God's word. You may be seated. We pray once more just to offer up this time specifically and ask God to work through the preaching of his word. Living God, we come to you now as those who want to put ourselves underneath your word, trusting you, God, to speak specifically to each one of us just in the ways you want to this morning. These words were written thousands of years ago, and yet we believe by your spirit they speak to us today because you say this this word is living and alive. It's active and it pierces through all the facades, through all of the masks we put on. It pierces right down to the bone and reveals exactly where the need is. So God, whether that's a place we need to be grown and and rebuked, whether that's a place where we need to be encouraged and helped accomplish that work today by your word to God. I pray that you would work through what you've uh, led me to prepare this week. God, even in my weakness, I ask that you would speak powerfully this morning to each one of us. As I always ask now, eternal God, move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. In his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, Dr. Martin Luther King wrote this. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence, but we still creep at a horse and buggy pace towards gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait, But when you've seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will, drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you've seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers and sisters smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, 
when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that's just being advertised on television. See tears welling up in her eyes as she's told that fun town is closed to colored children. See the ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky. He goes on, there comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. And maybe that seems like an odd way to begin a message entitled The Necessity of Patience. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I, I just right from the beginning here, I want to clearly mark the boundaries of our discussion as we look at what James is going to show to us this morning about patience. Because on the one hand, although, yeah, Dr. King, he uses the word impatience in what he just said, I think we'd all agree that acting after 340 years of oppression rather than demonstrating impatience, that, that's way closer to this edge over here of what we would call patience, right? And then on the other side over here, by way of contrast, to consider how, with rare exceptions, what we in our modern 21st century Western affluent society call being patient, yeah, that, that's probably much more closer to this boundary over here, what we would really call impatience, right? So, so we got these, these two boundaries uh, of what we mean when we're talking about patience. And then with those in mind, can we just be really honest with each other this morning? It is church, but let's be honest with one another this morning and say that for the majority of us in here, for the majority of the time, don't, don't we live most of our lives kind of over here? And what we would call impatience, you know, this, this, this nearsighted edge, this microwaved uh, express lane, are we there yet edge where, God help us, we can't even die fast enough. We, we have to now change the laws of our land so that doctors can now help us to die and end our suffering faster. And can we also be honest and admit that we know we've been lied to? We know that... Uh, uh, what we've been told and what we've just fully drunk the Kool-Aid to believe that, that all these technological advances, all these toys are going to make our lives easier. The truth is they've just made us busier than we've ever been in any generation before. Because I believe when we see that that's true and when we live over here so often... What that's going to do is make what James says this morning about being patient actually sound really foreign to our ears at first. It's going to kind of not really ring true right away. And it's going to make practicing what he shows us, what he's telling us to do, feel a little bit like learning to walk again after a spinal injury. It's going to take time. It's not going to be instantaneous. We're going to need to learn this and grow in this. Because here's the thing, more than just giving us a refresher course on patience and delayed gratification, in, in general, James is going to talk about being patient in a very specific context. He's going to talk about being patient in the context of suffering. And any of you who have suffered in the past or are suffering currently know that those are some of the most difficult circumstances of all to be patient. Because much more than just wanting something really badly, suffering, those circumstances, we, we are just desperate to get out from underneath them. We just want to push them aside because they hurt. 
They, they, they're hard. They, they bring stress into our lives and they sap our energy with every moment that we're underneath them. We want to just get out from under them. I mean, my wife and I, we've had to deal with understanding some of this even just this past week with this accident. I mean, I mean we, we are busy people living in a fast-paced society and, and we don't like having to be patient with things like recovery, things like dealing with insurance documents and, and all these claims. We just, we just want to be like, come, come on, let's get out from this, please. Let's move on. We've got stuff to do. We don't like being patient at all. And the hurts and the stress, the oppression that comes in the midst of these suffering circumstances, that's actually very much like the circumstances that the church that James is writing to in this letter was in. So, whether you're suffering presently or you want to prepare yourself well for, the, well for the day when you will, I think we all want to know what it is that James wants to show us about how we can do this, how we can be patient in the midst of suffering. Now, we've been in James long enough to know that, okay, God uses suffering. God uses trials to, to help demonstrate the reality of our faith. That's what we've been saying this whole time, to demonstrate the reality of our faith as well as to grow. We, we know that now. But one of the things James is going to say now this morning in our passage is that without the key ingredient of patience, without the necessity of patience, without the ability to see this difficulty, see this trial all the way through to the end, we're never going to be able to experience the intended benefit that that suffering was meant to achieve in us. Literally, it will be like getting off the table in the midst of surgery if we cannot be patient and endure to the end. And in these few short verses, I think James lays out a path by which we can truly learn to be patient in suffering and gain the intended benefit that God has for allowing us to go through that trial, whatever it is. And I think James shows us how we can do that in just three ways. Shows us we can do this by having a future hope. By having a watchful eye. And then finally, by having a quiet endurance. A future hope. A watchful eye and a quiet endurance. So if you've closed your Bibles, please open them up again with me. Follow along with me through this passage. And let's see what James can teach us this morning about learning to be patient in the midst of suffering. So... Let's look at this first part of the path. James says we can be patient in suffering when we have a future hope. A future hope. And we see this in the first half of verse 7. Look there with me. James writes, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. Now, three small little things actually make that little sentence have a world of meaning added to it. I mean, James could have just said, hey, be, be patient. Just be patient. I mean, isn't that exactly what we say to our kids when they're being, you know, whiny and grumbling and complaining? We just say, just be patient. It's coming. But James adds things to this passage because he's got more to say. First of all, he adds the word brothers. He says it here and he says it actually all through these few verses. Brothers. Now, subtly, in, in a literary sense, what James is doing now is just shifting his focus. He's saying to everyone, hey, I'm, I'm not talking anymore to the rich oppressors that we were looking at last week. Now he's saying, no, no, now I'm talking to you, oppressed people. I'm looking at you, and so be patient, my, my brothers. Be patient, my sisters. And he's saying, 
I, I, I want you to know I'm with you in this same family. So all the things that would be included in what it means to be a brother and sister in Christ, he's including that by calling them my brothers. Secondly, the word then. You see, he says, be patient then. Now, then is just basically saying therefore, or in light of what I've just said before. Okay, so that's how we know right out of the gate that James is talking about being patient in suffering because suffering, because oppression is, is just what James was talking about being inflicted on these brothers and sisters before, just before verse 7 and by these uh, affluent, uh, arrogant, self-sufficient, wage-stealing uh, fortune tellers. He's saying, I-, I know what you're going through in-, in light of all that suffering that you're experiencing. Now that in itself could be enough, but... The third edition here is where the the future hope starts to come in. James doesn't just say, be patient then, brothers. I I know what you're going through. I'm with you in this. God's with you in this. No, no, no. He says something else. And the whole rationale he gives behind the exhortation is by adding until. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Until the Lord's coming. And and even before we unpack what he means by that, we see James offering hope to those who are suffering under under this oppression by telling them, hey, guess what? It's it's not always going to be like this. This will come to an end. And oh, can we just be honest with each other now too and say, what what hope? What, What hope it brings, whether you are, are, are suffering under, uh, recovering from an accident, whether you are, are, are waiting in rush hour traffic three miles long, or whether you are sitting in a hole in Burkina Faso held by Islamic militants, wherever it is, how sweet to our ears does the word until sound. This is going to come to an end. And what's so beautiful about this, James doesn't just describe an end of suffering. He's describing here the one who's going to bring it to an end. You see, in, in the Greek, the, the word coming is parousia. And church history tells us that very early on in the early church, this word very quickly became synonymous with the second coming of Christ. They just heard it the exact same way. So this second coming where the Bible tells us Jesus is coming again. There will be an end to all of that's what's wrong with this world, but he will come, set up his kingdom here on earth, restore all that's been broken and lost, and bring justice at last. Listen to what the Apostle John writes, his, what, what the Bible's until will look like in Revelation 21, what this parousia will look like and what they're to look forward to. John writes this, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed from her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. That's what the Bible's until looks like. That's what we are hoping for. So, 
Here's the first step on the path in order to see what James is saying about having patience. He says the only way you're going to have patience in suffering, be able to make it through, so you can have the intended benefit of what this suffering is trying to achieve, is if you have a future hope that God's going to bring all this to an end. A glorious end. And, and he's not just going to end the oppression. He's also going to bring to justice the oppressors. Some of us are suffering this morning at the hands of others. We've been oppressed at the hands of others. It's not because of our own circumstances. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, uh, the Croatian religious philosopher Miroslav Volf just powerfully describes his ability uh, uh, as he endured the suffering in the Yugoslavian wars not to take up the sword against his oppressors precisely because he had this future hope. Because he had a future hope that the men who were burning their villages, who were slaughtering their men and raping their women, would really and truly give an account for those unspeakable actions. Because he had that future hope that allowed him to patiently endure that suffering. It was only because he had that, only because he knew hey, there is coming a day when this will end and those who have been unjust will face the justice. So for you and I today, whatever it is that you're suffering under currently or whatever you will suffer under one day, first way James says we can be patient here in that suffering and then receive the intended benefits is to constantly remind ourselves of the truth. We need to constantly remind ourselves, tell ourselves what's true. It won't always be like this. There is a beautiful end coming. No, nobody's getting away with anything. There will come a day, as J.R. Tolkien so uh, famously said, when God will make everything sad come untrue. That future hope is one of the first things that will help us to be patient in present sufferings. So, we have a future hope. That's the first step on the path. The second part of the path, to be patient in suffering, is to have a watchful eye. A watchful eye. Now, now James uses two key examples now in the rest of this passage to show his readers what, what this looks like on the ground. Just to give you an idea, okay, this is what this is going to look like. First one is of a farmer planting a field and then waiting, waiting for the uh, spring and autumn rains and then also waiting for the harvest to come. Look back at second half of verse 7 and into verse 8. James writes, you see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, how he's patient for the autumn, spring, autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Now, I, I realize that living here on the west side of Vancouver, farming, okay, that, that's not a common experience for a lot of us here. I know there's some gardeners here, but farming, that's another step above, right? That's, 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 that's somewhere else, right? That's across the water. That's out by, you know, out by there. That's, that's not us. I mean, most of us in here, we're going to be like that guy who's flipping out on the produce guy in Safeway. I mean, what, what do you mean there's no more cucumbers? And just go in the back and get some. You know, we just can't fathom the fact there's no cucumber maker in the back, that there is a farm where that's grown. But I think we know enough, though. We know enough of the process. We're an intelligent group. We know basically what James is, is getting at here. But two things that you notice that James highlighted in that description of the farmer. As he waits, first of all, he waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. And he's patient for the autumn and spring rains. Now, now what stands out to you about those two things? Does the farmer have any control at all over those things? Growing of the plants, 
uh, uh, the rain coming? No. That should stand out to us. He, he does work. He, he clears the land. He tills the soil. He plants the seed. But then he's got nothing more to do. All he can do is wait and watch for God to do now what only God can do. That's, that's what this example now is, is starting to try to reveal to us. Do you see God saying, hey, hey, you, you, you do the work that I've asked you to, but the growth process, you're not going to have anything to do with that. that. That's a process I've ordained to happen. The rains are not going to come because you're patient. You just need to be patient for them and wait. And when I know they need to come, they will come. Or if I withhold them, they won't come. So if we step back and just look big picture at this, we see what James is describing here is of someone doing the work that God has required for them to do, but then just having to stand back. Just be faithful, faithfully and dependently watch for the work that only God can do. That's what James is trying to tell us to do. It's a little bit like Christmas dinner. Okay, you, you set the table like mom asked you to. You set the table, but now you just got to wait. You can't, you can't do anything, and you just got to watch for the signs that tell you dinner's coming. Okay, oh, no, no, mom just put the gravy out. That's a good sign. Okay, oh, she lit the candles. Okay, that means dinner is really close now. That's what James is describing here. We watch for the work that only God can do. When we looked at this uh, earlier in the year with, uh, in our Exodus series where God called his people to be faithful and obedient to him and, and going to stay by the banks of the Red Sea. They, they did what he said. They followed him there. And then God said, okay, now all you're going to be able to do is just wait and watch for me to do what only I can do. I will be the one who is going to bring about the salvation. So we're seeing already, we can start to see there, there's a purpose in why God allows some of these trials to come into our lives. Why he allows these storms to come against us because he wants to put us in situations where our resources are stripped away. There's nothing more we can do. We have to rely on him. And that's a loving thing. That's not a, a cruel thing at all. Because as we rely on him, that's where our true strength is found. You see how James says there again in verse 8, he says, you too be patient like this and stand firm. Basically telling his readers, be patient just like that farmer is. Do what God's showed you to do and then be patient and stand firm. And then again, you see he roots it in that same parousia, that, that, that second coming. He says, for the Lord's coming is near. You see that? Now, sure, some of us would want to raise our hand and be like, uh, near? Judge is at the door? Like, uh, he's saying all this stuff about how near Christ is. Wasn't this like 2,000 years ago? I don't think he showed up then unless we've missed his second coming and he still hasn't come now. In what way is he near? And the answer to that is simply in just realizing that when the Bible is constantly saying again and again, talking about the nearness of Jesus, it's never promising a timetable. It's never saying, hey, hey, get ready, Jesus is coming tomorrow. What it's telling us is an attitude of life, that we are to live our lives as Christians as though he is coming tomorrow. That's what the Bible means when it talks about the nearness of Christ. We are to live, we are to act, we are to worship as though Jesus could come back at any second. And that is the promise of the Bible, that he absolutely could. A closer translation of those words, right? It says, be patient and stand firm. Stand firm. A closer translation in the Greek of those words is, establish your hearts. Be patient and establish your hearts. So I think what James is telling us there is, yes, you need to be patient, but you're also going to need to dig in now. 
You're going to need to root yourself and decide, I'm going to stay here and be patient right through to the end of this. I'm not going to give up until God has accomplished what he's going to do here. And I think the reason he's shown us this example of the farmer who has to be totally dependent on God and be patient and telling us to be the exact same way in suffering is because how often do we have the tendency in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, to get tired? We get overwhelmed. It's too much. We sometimes just get bored. When is this going to be over? And then how often do we try to fix it for God? We just want to help him out to speed it along, speed along the process. You know, how often we've been in a, some sort of a difficult situation. Uh, God's taking us through some trial, and we just decide for God, you know, I think it's time that this should be over now. I don't think I, don't think I need to free fall anymore. I think I'm just going to go ahead and pull the ripcord here. There's no way God would want me to fall any further than this. The example of the farmer here, having to wait, having no control over these things, is James telling his readers, and you and I today, yes, yes, you've got work to do. Yes, has a, God has a part for you in this. But God's saying, hey, I, I'm the one who controls the reins. I'm the one who controls the growth. I'm the one who's working out my plan here. So how about you just take your hand off the eject button? And how about you just let me decide when you've been in this trial, when you've been through this thing long enough that it's accomplished what I want to accomplish in you? Just like the people of Israel, God says to us, be still now and watch for my work and you will see the salvation of the Lord. In light of all of that. What is this valuable crop? He says he waits for this valuable crop. What does that mean for us when we think of waiting for the valuable crop that comes from being patient and suffering? I think, isn't it just the harvest of righteousness? That harvest of righteousness that he talked about earlier in chapter 3, verse 18. And that valuable crop isn't, isn't just speaking about justice for oppressors. I think it's talking about a valuable crop where we grow in that heavenly wisdom The heavenly wisdom that sees present sufferings from a heavenly perspective as opposed to the earthly one that that can just see the here and now and it can't imagine why God would want anyone to suffer any more than what we think is reasonable. So we have a watchful eye looking for the work of God in us as well as in our circumstances. And James tells us when we do that, when we're looking for the work of God in our trials, it's going to help us to be patient and make it through. And then beyond that, thinking of just looking at all this, being patient in the midst of suffering, God isn't asking us to do, do you know, what he doesn't also do himself. Do you know the Bible describes God as waiting? Describes him as also being patient with evil and suffering? Uh, uh, Romans 8 classically talks about all of creation groaning and waiting for the sons of God to be revealed and for that, that second coming when Christ will return and make the world right again. Romans 9 talks about, as it relates to judgment, God being patiently waiting, apparently patiently bearing with the objects of his wrath in order to make his salvation more glorious to the ones who are being saved. As it relates to salvation, we read about God being patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God, too, waits and is patient, just like he's asking us to be here. So the big idea here is that we can remain patient in suffering as we're obedient to what God calls us to do. And then, like that farmer who watches for God's work, we are to then look 
to see God's work in and through those difficult circumstances in our lives and be patient and wait for him to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in us. Because think about it. If he shaped the trial, if he shaped the difficulty, doesn't he know just how long we need to be in it for it to accomplish what he wants? If he wrote the recipe, doesn't he know how long it needs to be in the oven before we take it out? But we know that's not easy either, is it? So that's also why James added that. Be patient and establish your hearts. Root yourselves in that hope, resolving to be unmoved until the work is complete. Because again, when we judge when it's been long enough, we're probably going to get it wrong, right? So we need to root ourselves and establish our hearts. For to have a future hope, a watchful eye in order to be patient in suffering finally, the last part of the path James says we'll need to be truly patient is that we must have a quiet endurance. A quiet endurance. Now, ultimately, this last step is all about everything to do with having a grumbling, free trusting in God. A trust that he knows what he's doing, as well as a confident hope that he truly is coming again to set things right. Look what he says here finally in verses 9 through to the end, he says, Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance. You've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no no, or you'll be condemned. Now, verses 9 and, and 12 uh, really have to do with our responses to God in the midst of suffering. Verse 12 really has to do with that kind of arrogant boasting that Kyle was talking about last week in chapter 4. People just say, oh, I know what's going to happen. I'm going I'm to do things the way I want. And he's telling us not to do that. But the grumbling earlier on here, the grumbling of verse 9, uh, it has a bit more to it. I want to just spend a second to talk about this because in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Exodus, God's people, they, they are wandering through the wilderness in order to get to the promised land and grumbling. Wow. Grumbling uh, against uh, each other, against Moses and Aaron, against God is one of the key things highlighted all through that book as one of the things that demonstrates a lack of patient trust, a lack of faith in God. God describes grumbling as putting him to the test, saying, really? Really, you're really the God of the universe? I don't know about you, but let's just say if God had buttons, grumbling would be one of them we would push. He does not respond kindly to grumbling. Uh, I mean, any of you who are parents, we, we already know, and when you've planned something awesome for your kids, maybe a great party or, or a trip somewhere, and they are whining and grumbling the entire way there, Oh, he's got his hand on my side. Oh, this is taking too long. When are we going to get there? Oh, it's too hot. How many times do we just flip out? We become what we said we would. We become our dad. And we're like, you know what? That's enough. If, you, if this doesn't stop, I'm going to turn this car around. We're not going anywhere this summer. We've all said it. Grumbling. Grumbling is one of the Bible's descriptions as demonstrating a lack of patient, faithful trust in God. So to help us understand how to not go down that road, this is where James brings his second example in here. You see, he says, as an example of what it looks like to be patient in suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And you notice in verse 11, he even includes Job 
in the midst of these group of prophets. Now, if you don't know the story of Job, Job was a man described in the Old Testament who had everything and who God allowed to be utterly devastated, to literally lose everything from all he had to his children, to crops and everything, to be infected with sores and disease. Everything but his life was taken. And for our purposes this morning, what we see in the example of all those guys, all the prophets, but yeah, Job in particular, is that these guys were being faithful to God. They were doing what God told them to do, and things went really bad for them. Really bad. Which tells us, first of all, what we say often here. Suffering, difficulty, trials, those are common to every single one of us. I don't know what you've been told, but Christianity does not promise you a suffering-free existence. It doesn't. It promises you a hope in the midst of it, but it is not a suffering-free existence. But then to encourage us, to encourage us how we can be faithful and patient to endure that suffering, James goes on to remind his readers, who would have been very familiar with the stories of these prophets and Job, that one of the reasons we look up to these guys, one of the reasons we call them blessed of God, is not because they had problem-free lives. We say they're blessed of God because, why? Because they endured to the end. They persevered through the trial and received the blessing of God that came at the end. That's why we look up to them. And Job, in particular, in his lifetime, actually, has everything that was taken to him restored and, and then some. Isn't that a picture of what heaven is promised to us? Jesus says to his disciples, all that is given for me in this life and in following me will be restored to you and more. It's a hopeful promise to us, which is why James says in the second half of verse 11, look at it there. You've heard of Job's perseverance. You've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So he's saying, Job is one example where really all of these guys saw God is faithful. He can be trusted. He's compassionate. He's not against you. He's for you. And things that have been lost in this life will be restored, whether in this life or in the next. Now, if you know the story of Job, you might also want to just slip up your hand, saying, I'm not going to have lots of questions this morning, but how, how is Job an example of a grumbling free existence? Doesn't he kind of complain all through the book? Uh, not sure what uh, James is getting at here. I think, I think the example of, of Job shows us actually how we are to bring our complaints to God. It's not saying that we, God, we, we can't bring our burdens to him and, and bring our questions to him, but how we bring them is, is, is essential. There's an essential difference between those two things. Because Job, it tells us, Job 122, it says, in all of this, in this whole situation that Job went through, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So there must be a way of complaining to God, a way of grumbling that is different than what James is describing here as grumbling. So when it comes to our own lives and the suffering we go through, this last part of the path of patient endurance, God's not telling us, hey, just suck it up and be quiet or I'm going to turn the car around. What God is saying is he's telling us not to grumble because he wants to combat Two negative consequences that I think come from grumbling in the midst of suffering. Grumbling in the negative sense. I think there's a corporate consequence as well as a relational one. Corporately, I think we would all agree, when someone is going through suffering, when they're going through a trial and they are grumbling all the way through, 
And we're talking about grumbling in, a, in an accusatory sense. Grumbling in, as in a sense of, God, you are unjust. You are not loving like you say you are. That's the kind of grumbling James is describing. When we do that, corporately, don't we just drag down everyone else around us? Don't we just pull down people around us, our spouse, our family, our church family, the people who, we, who know we're Christians, that we are working around, see us complaining in such a way? Don't we have a corporate consequence that comes from that kind of grumbling? James is saying, don't do that. When you complain, when you bring your complaints, how you demonstrate them, how you share them is of vital importance. When you share your, your struggles, do you share them in a way that says, I don't understand what's going on. This, this hurts so bad, but I trust that God is faithful. I know he knows what he's doing. I'm just waiting on him to reveal what that is to me. That is a, a faithful way to bring your complaints to God and to, to, to share your burdens with one another. The Bible tells us to share our burdens. He's not saying, hey, just don't share them. But the way we share them is such, such vital importance also. There's a relational consequence. Isn't our relationship with God also hindered and damaged when we grumble against him in the midst of our suffering? That's what we saw all through the books of Exodus. Because in the end, what we're really doing is we're telling God he can't really be trusted. God, you are not strong enough to get me out of this, or God, you're not loving enough to want to. And that's exactly what we described a few weeks ago as nothing more than earthly wisdom. It's the earthly wisdom that arrogantly assumes in our human, weak, finite, nearsighted, short-sighted view that we know better than God. We know better than him what we need. It only serves to weaken our faith, distance our relationship with God, and actually cause us to lose any hope then of receiving the benefit that would have come if we'd been able to persevere to the end of the trial. So, Quiet endurance, then, is all about a trusting attitude that God knows what he's doing and that he truly will bring about that beautiful end that he's promised, where he'll make all things right, where he truly will, uh, what the prophet Joel says, he will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. His promise is to do that in this life or in the next. We need to say we're not, we're not always going to know what it's going to look like. We're not always going to be able to see it, but we can trust that James, what he says, that this future hope, that that is the key piece. The future hope that we hold on to, that that end is coming. Quiet endurance is really just demonstrating that we believe it's actually going to happen. Chapter 1 of this letter, James tells us one of the key reasons why patience is so important. He's given us examples here in chapter 5, but... Turn back with me one page, if you will, to James chapter 1, just very quickly. Look at verse 2 with me. James shows us here why patience is such an incredibly important, essential ingredient in the Christian life. Look what he says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now listen carefully. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So do you see what James is saying? 
He's saying these trials and difficulties we're going through, they're, they're developing our faith. They're growing us to be mature and complete in every way, but they have to complete their work before they can do that. That's why we need to be patient to the end. It takes time. This is not like the matrix where you can just plug in a computer and just instantly download mature faith, heavenly wisdom. It doesn't work like that. That's why he says these trials develop that, that perseverance, that ability to endure. Someone, uh, another pastor said, perseverance is just like patience on steroids. It's just like, I am going to make it. I'm not moving from here. Solid. That's the kind of patience that is developed over time as we have that future hope, as we watch for the activity of God, and as we quietly endure what he is allowing us to go through. So as we are patient in suffering, as we quietly endure the trials, it's only then that we attain that goal that the trial to begin with, when we see it through to the end. But that's hard, right? It's unbelievably hard, particularly when the waves are crashing over us. We feel like we're in the midst of, we're drowning. We don't see any escape at all. Can we all just say and admit, that seems impossible? I don't know, how, how do I do that? How in the world could I be patient in such circumstances? We're also living again, we said at the beginning, we're living in this fast-paced, hyper-speed, impatient world that is telling us at every second and every commercial, you shouldn't have to wait. You should have it now. That's the culture that we're living in. How do we endure patiently with all this going on around us? The answer is by the power of the Spirit of God living in us. Only by the power of the Spirit can we do this. We have a Savior. The story of the Gospel is that we have a Savior who patiently and quietly endured first. He did it for us and cleared a path through the way so that we could walk through so that we could then have his spirit living inside us to empower us to do this. It's the only way we'll ever do it, through a relationship with that Christ. Listen to how the Bible describes how Jesus quietly endured on our behalf. Isaiah 53, listen. He, this is Jesus, was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 2, speaking about suffering and enduring suffering. He says, to this you were called. Why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. We see, just like what God is calling us to, it wasn't enough for Jesus just to suffer. It wasn't enough for him to begin down the path, to, to be nailed to the cross. He needed to endure patiently all the way to the end, all the way to that horrible, violent, bloody end. And because he did that, then he achieved a goal which we are now all partakers of, our salvation. Peter tells us Christ left us this example that we're to follow. We can only do it as we follow the path that our Savior has cleared ahead of us. 
we see that the faithful, patient, obedient of Christ all the way to that horrible, terrible end brought about his glorious exaltation. That's what Philippians 2 tells us, for instance. Because he suffered, because he suffered through to the end, he was exalted above all other names and all other peoples. And do you know what the Bible tells us as well? If we endure with him, we will also reign with him, which is the greatest benefit of all that will last for all eternity. Let's pray.